Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking about Tour de France unpacking Tadej Pogacar's second consecutive victory, as well as Wout Van Aert's uh, really stunning final week performance. I'm not quite sure that's been put into the context that it needs to. I mean, it's an, it's an absolute ridiculous double. He won the time trial on Saturday, and then the sprint on the Champs-Élysées on Sunday, which is uh, really unheard of. I'm, I'm not quite sure that's ever happened before. I know he's the, th- the first rider since 1979 to win a mountain time trial and sprint stage in the same Tour de France. Bernard Hinault was the rider to do it in 79. Um, and the fact that we're even talking about someone matching the achievements of Eno in the 70s is, is absurd. The, the sport's so different now. So let's try to put that in a little bit of context. It's, it's completely insane. But first, let's welcome our Tour de France sponsor, Idahoan Foods. This podcast and newsletter throughout the tour and the week, the Olympic week following the tour, is brought to you by our friends at Idahoan Foods. Enjoy 30% off any order on their potato products at shop.idahoan.com during the Tour de France by entering discount code BT. BTP30 at checkout. And you can use BTP30 for 30% off and free shipping on your first subscription order with 15% off and free shipping on every order after that. Idahoan Foods offers real Idahoan potato products in easy to bake and cook meals. I'm loading up on these during the last week that this offer is valid before the Olympics on Saturday. You can get free shipping on any order over $55 on their site with that code. And their naturally gluten-free, 100% real Idaho potato products are fresh-dried to make prep easy and done within minutes. And this is huge for cyclists. As you know, a 2019 study published in the Journal of Applied Physiology concluded that eating potatoes during prolonged cycling is as effective as commercial carbohydrate gels to support exercise performance. Furthermore, potatoes are a promising savory alternative for athletes because they are a cost-effective, nutrient-dense, whole food source of carbs compared to the overly sweet carbohydrate gels. Uh, gels and bars can get tiring on the bike. I sometimes don't eat them because they upset my stomach. So some natural potato-derived products would definitely be a better alternative for me. And shop online at shop.idohan.com and enter BTP30 at checkout to get 30% off through this week. All right, back to the cycling. Tade Pogacar wrapped up his second consecutive tour victory yesterday on Sunday. The big story of the day was Mark Cavendish not breaking the all-time stage win record with Wout Van Aert, really kind of schooling him in that sprint. That was, um, I felt like that was the first time that they they really had to go head-to-head. If you remember earlier sprints, Wout was busy doing other stuff for almost the entire race. There was that stage 10 where he got second to Mark Cavendish in Valence in the bunch sprint there. That was, so he really competed in two bunch sprints the entire race. He got second on stage 10 and first on stage 21. And on stage 10, it was a really technical finish. Dakota Quick Step really kind of just controlled, really with an iron fist, that final two kilometers. No one was coming around Cavendish. He was dropped off like 40 meters from the finish line and just um, kind of just jumped over the line. And first, uh, I thought Wow and Jasper Philipson were moving faster than him. And we kind of saw that on yesterday's finish on stage 21. The Champs-Élysées is wide open. I mean, anyone who's been on it, it's a huge wide open boulevard. Normally reserved for a bunch of cars, not really a cycling road. And the finish was extended quite a bit way, like 600 meters past the old finish. So you go around that right-hand turn, and normally it's a little bit more technical where you have to be up towards the front. Um, you have to be really well positioned, and then you, you launch right after that turn. It helps to have your team on the front going into that turn. It, it was a little bit different this year, and Dakota Quickstep was on the front. 
going into the turn, but Cavendish was buried. I mean, he was on Wout Van Aert's wheel going around that, which was not the best place to be because once Wout wound up and went, him and Mike Tunison, his teammate who did an amazing lead out, a one-man lead out to win on the Champs-Élysées, super impressive, uh, just launched right when Michael Morkoff, Cavs lead out man, pulled off. He, in turn, then launched Wout with like 200 meters to go, and no one was coming around him there. It was such a fast sprint. They're going like 41, 42 miles an hour. Like, you, you can't really come around someone at that speed. Like, you'd have to be going, where, where are you going to get the extra five or six miles an hour to come around them? So, um, pretty poor positioning by Cavendish. I thought it was a little bit once things got opened up. We'll talk about what preceded that a little bit later down the line, but Kofidis and EF were really, really making the final hard in ways that that hadn't been the case in earlier bunch sprints. So really different lead into that. And I think the the byproduct of that was we saw like the real strength come out. Um, Wowd is just stronger. He's just stronger and faster than Mark Cavendish. And once Cavendish was separated and isolated from his team, we saw that pretty clearly. Wout's win meant that Cavendish, and, and, and also note Jasper Philipson got second. Um, so even if Wout wouldn't have won that, I, it, it's crazy to think Philipson got six podiums, I believe four second places at this tour. He just could not beat Cavendish all year. Um, he finally beats Cavendish and he gets beat by Wout Van Aert. Oops. Um, but yeah, kind of interesting that Philipson would have won that sprint over Cavendish had Van Aert not participated in it. The win meant that Van Aert now has four sprint stages at the tour in the last three years, which is really crazy. i having a conversation with a friend after the stage and he's like a big sprint guy he was saying like oh like like our sprinters dead like when are the sprinters coming back will will sprinters exist anymore but yeah i was thinking about that it's almost like van arts is a sprinter i mean it's actually hard to to call him anything else he's not just a sprinter but you know he's just as good as you know i i think i think some of us um maybe like in our 30s like we, we kind of came we came up with Cavendish. So like Cavendish has been like our sprint totem. Um, and we saw this like new, if you remember this new wave of sprinter come into the sport, tens, I don't know what we call that, like uh, the after the aughts, the decade following the aughts. So Cavendish is just dominating um, the sprinters that kind of aged out of the aughts. But then as he, as he gets into the mid arc of his career, you get these uh, like super sprinters, like Marcel Kittel coming along. And if you remember like John Deckenkolb and Marcel Kittel were on the, God, it was Skills Shimano and then it was something else. Um, There's a documentary about it, great documentary where they are just kind of beating up Cav the entire Tour de France. And then you had like Alexander Kristoff come along. I think there was a tour where he won three stages in it. Um, and it looked like Cav had just kind of been replaced by those guys and those guys were just faster sprinters. Um, Cavendish kind of came back and had a little resurgence in 2016 is beating them at the tour and then, you know, disappears for four or five years and comes back this year after those guys have either retired or just kind of like Kristoff wasn't even selected for this race. Um, and, and on top of that, there was a new, new age of sprinters like, uh, Pascal Ackerman and Sam Bennett, who I personally thought were stronger than everyone that had come before them. But those guys, uh, neither Bennett nor Ackerman even made the tour this year. And if you remember Dylan Gronewegen before, um, he had that kind of unfortunate crash in, at the Tour of Poland in 2019. I, I also thought he was like a new age Cavendish and, and Caleb Ewan. But, you know, it's like, where are those guys now? I mean, Ewan kind of crashed. He crashed out being a little bit desperate on stage three. You know, who knows what would happen? But, you know, we're left with a situation where it, it's hard to say Wout Van Aert's not the best sprinter in the world at the moment. Um, he won what, what a lot of people considered to be the Sprinters World Championships, the final stage of the Tour. And he's beaten all these guys, 
you know, at the tour, he really only sprints at the tour. He, I guess he won a bunch sprint at Torino Adriatico earlier this year. But if you go back in the last three years, he's beaten Caleb Hewen, Sam Bennett, Elia Viviani, Peter Sagan, Mark Cavendish, Jasper Philipson, who I guess is now like a grade A sprinter. He's beaten them all straight up in Tour de France bunch sprints. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if sprinters have gone anywhere. They've just changed. You know, if, if you're going to tell me you want to come into the sport, if you want to be like, even Sam Bennett is, I wouldn't say is a pure sprinter. He, you know, he won the green jersey last year. He's pretty, pretty versatile. Um, yeah, I don't think we're going to see the big rigid guy like Kittle who just had to be, you know, he had to have an entire team pulling him around France um, to get over even the, the remotely, you know, even mild climbs. So um, with, with teams going from nine to eight riders at the tour, I just don't see that ever coming back. Um, and he looked Gronovic and is so good, and he just cannot make a, a tour team because, you know, his Jumbo Visma is going for other things. They're going for general classification. They get, they get second at this race overall. And then they have Wout Van Aert, who can work for that guy who got second, Jonas Vindegaard, and then just sprint in his spare time. So, yeah, there's not a lot of, there, there's not a ton of motivation to bring a rider that you just have to babysit for three weeks when you can get guys like, um, I mean, Michael Matthews isn't really winning bunch sprints anymore, but um, Bike Exchange certainly got a lot out of his, um, he had multiple podiums. He was visible at the front of the race pretty much the entire time, every intermediately hard stage. You know, are you going to bring, you know, maybe a team like DSM? DSM would have been better off just bringing Sam Bennett and working for Sam Bennett instead of Sace Bowl. I don't know why they did that. They had a great tour, racing a somewhat, somewhat last year, just being aggressive, going for stages. You know, kind of racing by committee. I, I don't know why they went away from that, but that that's kind of the danger of. I mean, DSM is sitting out there as an example of what you don't want to be, and that is a team that's dedicated to a sprinter that is not going to win. Um, th- their tour is pretty much ruined because Sayspool just cannot compete in these bunch sprints. Yet they insist on him competing in them. I don't quite get it. Kind of an inter- another interesting byproduct to think about that sprint yesterday. I thought Dakota Quick Step did have a chance to, um, if you remember back on stage 19, that they had the sprint stage locked up. The way the stage was playing out was it was going to be a bunch sprint. And then things got crazy. They put a rider, they put David Ballerini in the breakaway and then decided not to work for a sprint that day. Looking back, that potentially was a mistake because it just, it seemed like it was too much pressure. Um, it looked like they were feeling the pressure yesterday and Cavendish was feeling the pressure both internally and externally where um, it was a really wild Champs-Élysées. quick Quickstep was working really hard to keep things under control. Like, for example, Alaphilippe was, had to pull off with 3K to go. That's how hard he was working up to that point, where in previous sprints, he was taking them into the final kilometer. Um, I, you know, looking back, they probably should have just, just committed to a sprint on stage 19. Cavendish probably wins that day. Boom, they've got the record. The Champs-Élysées is all gravy. Um, it's a little bit harder to call their bluff and maybe other teams come work for them a little bit more, even though they had Ineos working them, working for them for some reason. We'll talk about that too in a minute. It feels like the, the overwhelming, uh, people are sad that Cavendish didn't get the record. I'm not particularly that sad. He's a great sprinter, um, entertaining person, but I, I don't, you know, if he can't break the record, he can't break the record. That's why records are hard to break. It's not like he's owed the Tour de France stage one record. Um, but the fact that he didn't get it yesterday makes it a lot harder for him. If you think about, you know, he's on a minimum sal- salary this year, like what are the odds that Dakota Quick Step's going to bring him back on more money? 
Patrick Lefevre, the team manager, is not an idiot. He's been saying during this tour that Cavendish should retire because he doesn't want to spend a bunch of money on a 37-year-old bunch runner who uh, definitely showed his age a little bit uh, on the Champs-Élysées yesterday. So I doubt he comes back on Dakota Quickstep. He's not really been able to have success on any team except them for the past eight, nine years. So it's definitely not a given he's coming back and winning any tour stages. So it's possible that that's it which is crazy to think about. Um, it's because he, he, up until yesterday, he had swept the tour stage, swept the sprint stages. Um, he lost one sprint at this race, and it was yesterday against Wout Benart. And if you think it, it might be it for him, I, it's hard to imagine him coming back with like a healthy Caleb Ewan, Sam Bennett on a team that supports him, Pascal Ackerman on board next year when, when Peter Sagan's gone. And... Yeah, I don't, I don't totally see him being able to compete with those guys. You know, I could be wrong. Like, everyone's been wrong about Mark Cavendish for the last few years. So, you know, clearly, obviously, potentially could be wrong, but it's, it's going to be really tough. You know, it's rarely, rare you get a scenario like that where it's like, well, you win this stage, and then if you don't, that's possibly it for the rest of your career. But that's kind of how I read that. Um, and then let's unpack Wout Van Aert's final weekend, or I guess final two weeks, which we're crazy. So um, let's just uh, frame this in the, in the old Van Art versus Vanderpool competition. They're two rivals. They've, they've been rivals going back to cyclocross days. So who had the better Tour de France? You, you ask me on the first rest day, who's the better? Who has the better Tour de France? Who's the star of the future? It's Matthew Vanderpool, obviously. He had the yellow jersey for six stages. He wins stage two in fantastic fashion. He defended his jersey incredibly. If you remember the time trial in stage five, he defended that. That seems like a, a lifetime ago, right? And then stage seven, uh, Van Hart can't drop him. He defends his jersey there. He loses it on stage eight to Tade Pagachar. Wout Van Hart, you know, s- stumbles quite a bit. He's in second place by three minutes, almost three minutes on stage eight. That's interesting to go back and think about. Stage nine, Vanderpool drops out before the start of the stage. Um, and you're just like, well, clearly he had the best, he had the better tour. Wout Van Aert has not looked himself. He looked pretty, um, somewhat for his standards, quite pedestrian in that first week. He had an, an emergency appendix removal in June. So he was off the bike for a few weeks, which is not good if you're preparing for the Tour de France. And he looked like it. Um, what, what I didn't see coming was what would happen after that first rest day. I mean, Wout Van Aert comes out on stage 10. The first day after the rest day, he gets second place in the sprint because if you remember, Tata or uh, Primus Roglic dropped out um, the day before that rest day as well. So Wout Van Aert's now freed up to do whatever he wants, to race for himself. Um, that was a sign of like, hmm, that's interesting. Wout Van Aert's getting second in bunch sprints now uh, to Mark Cavendish. He's the second best sprinter at this race. We go to stage 11, Mombon 2, double stage of Mombon 2. Wout Van Aert gets in the break, wins the stage solo. I mean, that was one of the most impressive things I've seen in a long time. Um, he was so stable on the bike. That, that, that's what was ultimately so impressive to me. He was not fighting the bike that final time up Mombon 2. Ineos was leading the peloton and not really pulling him back, not putting a lot of time into him. Um, super impressive. I mean, if we go back, if we play this back and he can hold on, you know, he had that long breakaway on stage seven to try to get in position to take the yellow jersey. Didn't work out. So he's pretty gassed on that Alpine weekend, that first, the stages eight and nine. Um, if he can survive stage nine, it's not to me in my mind. It's not. You know, it's not obvious that he's losing that podium place overall, which is really interesting to think about. Yeah, w- wins Mont too. Probably the second hardest mountain stage of the race. 
And, and you're thinking, well, that's a pretty good, pretty good recovery for Yumbo. They go from kind of struggling all year long. Sepp Kuss is, is not who they needed him to be in those one-week stage races. No one looks good. No one looks good except Primus Roglic. And at times, Jonas Vindegaard, who got second at the Basque Country, ahead of Tadej Pogacar, behind Primus Roglic. That's, that's an interesting race to go back and rewatch now, knowing what we know now. Um, by stage, you know, Sepp, Sepp Kuss wins stage 15. Okay, they've got two stage wins. They're second overall. That's pretty good for a team with uh, three riders who have crashed out, um, including their best, including their team leader and probably their best rider, or at least their best GC rider. Yeah, and then the and then the final weekend goes by. They they sweep the weekend. Wout Van Aert wins both stages, so now they have four stage wins as a team. Three from Wout Van Aert, a ridiculous hat trick, and they get second overall. So, I mean, they possibly, obviously, UAE, it's, it's special to win a tour. Like, uh, you, can't, you can't write off what Pogacar's UAE team did. That's really impressive to win the overall. Yeah, I would almost say what Yumbo did is more impressive, though, as a team. To, to be down to five riders and to get four stage wins in second overall with a rider who was pretty much unknown before this over Ineos, over the $60 million super team. Is really impressive. A $60 million super team, by the way, who didn't win a stage, never really competed for a stage win, was never really in contention to win the overall, who just kind of used their might to ride onto the podium over Ben O'Connor, who's probably making a fraction of the lowest paid rider on Ineos, or at least on that tour squad. Not a, not a glowing recommendation from me after that performance. So super impressive. Yumbo was really able to put that together and come away. I'd say the team of the tour. And then let's talk about Ineos for a second. I mean, this was a bad, a bad, bad Tour de France. If we go back to that, they won the Tour in 2012 with Bradley Wiggins. Since then, they've only lost it twice. They lost it in 2014 after Chris Room crashed out to Vincenzo Nibali, and then again in 2020 when Tadej Pogacar won last year. This was, I'd say this was their worst tour. Last year, at least, if you remember, they, they were quite bad. They came in with Bernal as their leader. It didn't work out. His back was never right. Things never looked good. You probably never should have been at the race start, been at the start. But at least they won a stage, you know, and Carapaz was attacking that entire final week. This was ridiculous. Um, they pretty much rode. I was thinking UAE probably had to ride on the front less than any team that's defended the jersey for that long, for two weeks, essentially, ever. I mean, they were rarely on the front. They were rarely put under pressure because Ineos, it was either a sprint stage or it was either a stage where, you know, Bahrain, Mitchelton Scott, the random French teams were trying to force some type of sprint at the intermediate sprint, or, you know, EF was, was working on the front for some bit to get second in the team classification. Not quite clear why that was necessary. But a lot of the times it was Ineos. So if you remember stage 11, that was the day to really attack Pogacar. Um, nothing, but nothing happened because Ineos was riding defensively on the front. It was like they had lost their minds. And they were riding defensively to, def- to defend, defend a jersey they did not have. Um, it was like they short-circuited. It, it looked exactly the same as it has for the last decade, except a key detail, they didn't have the race lead. I, I still can't quite wrap my mind around it. I don't know what they were riding for. They, were they just, we'll defend third place and maybe first and second will get lost, um, be kidnapped? I, I, don't know, I don't know what... The plan was there. And this is from a team who prides themselves on always having a plan, always having thought things through. I mean, their budget is probably twice as large as the next team's budget. 
So the tactics were concerned. The tactics tactics were concerning, confusing. Um, I, I was often confused by what they were doing. Um, it just seemed like they were defending the race for Pogachar instead of using, you know, there's, we'll talk about their strength, their physical strength in a second. It was not what it, what it was advertised as, even by myself. Uh, I thought they were going to be the strongest team in the race. They, they were not, you know, they really, they had two strong riders outside of Carapaz. They had uh, Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan Castroviejo and Mikhail Kiyokoski. Other than that, they didn't have a lot of support um, at any points when things got difficult. Their tactics were, I, I thought, so concerning. I thought they still could have used what they had, what, you know, what strength they had to, there was a lot of hilly stages. And if I break down, I'm going to be sending out a tour breakdown newsletter, maybe into the day today or early tomorrow. You know, if you go through this tour, there was a lot of hilly stages. I, I classified six stages as, or five stages as like hilly. Now, these are, these are not like hills that would be around your house. These are like Pyrenean or Alpine foothills. Arguably better place for an ambush or a long range raid like we saw on stage seven than the high mountains. Um, there's no change on the GC in any of these stages between the top three. To me, that's a huge missed opportunity. I mean, I don't, I don't know what was going on inside the Ineos camp, inside the team bus. Like the fact that they didn't have those stages circled as stages that they had to try to make something happen is completely baffling to me. I, I, I cannot get over it. And then we'll go in. Let's talk about the team's physical strength. Um, there was concerns on stage two already, at least for me, um, when they were at the bottom of the Muda Britannia, and Richie Port and Garrett Thomas were on the front going so hard for them. And there was like 60 riders in the peloton behind and Matty Motorich looked straight up bored on their wheel. That was a concern. Um, I, I felt old there. And it can, I think this is hard. You know, it's hard for fans and media, which is understandable. You watch these guys be so dominant and it feels like it was yesterday, but stuff changes in pro sports really fast. The thing that's crazy to me is that the team can be as cut out as this. I mean, they should know. The team knows better. They should know that Garrett Thomas and Richie Port are no longer world-class riders. Like they should not be counted on to break a race up there. And okay, Garrett Thomas crashes, dislocates his shoulder, but you know there was clear signs from him that he was just disinterested in what, in what was going on at that team. Same thing with Richie, Richie Port and Teo Gegenhardt. It's like either these guys should not have been at the race because at least Port and Gegenhardt looked looked really, really outclassed. <laughs> Super important parts of the race. They should not have been getting dropped where they were getting dropped. Um, and Garrett Thomas was working for Cavendish a lot. If you, um, stage 19 and stage 21, he's on the front for Cavendish, which is, you know, to me, if I'm running that team, that's completely unacceptable. Like, what are you doing? We haven't won a stage at this race. We've gotten almost nothing out of it. And we're working for another team. Like, like what is going on here? I wouldn't be shocked if, if Jim Ratcliffe, the guy who owns funds, runs that team, he starts looking around and thinking like, wow, I'm spending so much money and we're not really getting anything out of it. And my riders are working for riders and other teams. Like, like what exactly am I paying for here? Um, I think there's going to be some difficult conversations, at, at least at the top of that team pyramid in the next couple months, because then there's no clear path forward. That's what's concerning. You know, they have Egan Bernal. Um, th that's not nothing. That's actually a pretty good card to have. I don't think he's as good as Tadej Pogacar, but throw them in a race, see what happens. The thing is, they're not racing them. Like, I, I don't know what the team politics are there, but the fact that Richie Port, Teo Gegenhardt, Garrett Thomas were selected before Egan Bernal for the Tour de France, like what was going on there? That that's, to me seems unacceptable, Unex inexcusable. They seem like they have, one, they have one card to play, at least in the GC going forward. It's, it's Bernal. You, you 
ride your best riders at the biggest races. This isn't rocket science, guys. And Adam Yates, I mean, Adam Yates, you have, there's reasons to doubt Adam Yates. He often disappoints in big stage races, in big grand, in big grand tours. But, you know, outside of Bernal, he looked like their best rider this year, or at least their best stage racer. The fact that he didn't make this team is really mind-boggling. I guarantee you he would have been stronger than Richie Port, Thomas, and Teo Gaginard. So, um, yeah, that team, I felt like they got found out a little bit. And, you know, there's been this narrative over the past, you know, decade that it's like, oh, they're so smart. They know what they're doing. You start to look a lot dumber when you don't have the strongest rider on the team. Um, they, they've, they just did exactly what they'd done for years. And they looked pretty bad doing it because, you know, when you don't have the strongest rider, it's like, okay, you're setting a hard pace. Like who cares? You're hurting your own leader. Carapaz was like hurt anytime they set pace because it was easier for Pogacar than it was for him. Um, and, and that kind of brings me to my final point about Ineos. That thing that really signals how, you know, maybe decoupled their reality from where they think they should be is Carapaz is probably thrilled about this third place. This is a big result for him. I actually thought he rode pretty well. The problem is he rode pretty well and he lost time to Pogacar and Vindegaard on every type of terrain except that flat finish on stage three when he didn't crash and the other two did. Or I guess Pogacar maybe didn't go down. He was just caught up in the crash. Um, that's not good. <laughs> just to straight up lose time on every different type of terrain. You know, he's just not as good. And, and that's fine. Like it's okay to not be as good as two really good guys. Um, they're just completely out of step, those two things, where Carapaz gets a, probably a career best result. I'd say this is better than his, his third place here is better than his win at the Giro d'Italia in 2019 in the, scheme, in the grand scheme of things. This is a, it's a complete disaster for the team. I mean, they're not putting all of this in, all of this money and work in and having quote unquote stars like Richie Port and Garrett Thomas working to get third place. Um, that, that's just not what they need to be getting out of this. I think there needs to be some shakeup at that team. Um, they really need to reevaluate what they want. Their roster is way too old. You, know, you, you could just tell them that by glancing at the roster. At least the riders they're relying on for big results are far too old. Um, I haven't broken it down yet, but you know, this tour was the tour of youth. Just like last year, um, Philippe Chalbert was the invisible man this entire time. Thomas Tegent, he was, you know, he's, been, he's been Matty Motoric in the past. He was nowhere. He couldn't even make a breakaway. Greg Van Avermaet makes you know one significant move. It was stage six. It was a doomed breakaway. I'm not still not quite sure why he used his energy there. But you know those guys look really, really, really outclassed. You know they're really showing their age after holding it together and almost like the sport skipped a generation um, up until 2019. And these older guys in their mid 30s were able to keep dominating at the expense of riders who are like quote unquote in their prime. But we're seeing now with this like rising younger generation that you just cannot rely on riders in their mid to late 30s to generate results for you. That, that can't be your strategy. So, you know, if they wanted to continue to be successful, it's because successful as they think they should be, they can no longer be sending Richie Port and Garrett Thomas as, as like anchors of Grand Tour teams. That, that can't happen. Um, an interesting thing here is that they, are, they did dominate one week stage races. They won like almost every one week stage race. And at, so at some points, they swept the podium, like Volta Catalunya. Um, I could see why they maybe, if they're just going by results, which is not like them, they usually dig into the details pretty closely, why they might be confused about this, because it's like, well, Richie Port and Garrett Thomas are dominating at 
one week stage races. But you know, even I was able to go through and flag some some concern points there, like the Dauphiné, where they got blown out of the water in the time trial when they shouldn't have. You know, that should have been a big red flag. Where the, you look around these one week stage races and saying, "Hey, we're competing against like dog poop fields." You know, the one time there was a strong field, Terreno Terreno Adriatico, they they got dominated by Tadej Pogacar. Uh, both Egan Bernal and Garrett Thomas, and also beat quite handily, mind you, by Wout Van Aert, a sprinter who I just talked about being a sprinter. Um, that, that should have been a cause for concern. I think, you know, maybe they should have looked in the mirror there and said, you know, the only rider really doing, like, I, th- I think putting out numbers, putting out the type of numbers you need to be at the front of a tough stage of the tour is Adam Yates and Egan Bernal. And that's who we're going with for the tour. You know, we're not trying to win they shouldn't be trying to win one week stage races like those things are getting more and more irrelevant where the, the, the think about the big stars like they're not going to those anymore at least gc stars you know tade pogacar primos roglic don't do tour switzerland or criterium de dauphine this year um jonas vindegaard did dauphine didn't really bother with the gc you know he was there doing his thing he had a good ride in the final weekend and that was kind of it but like if they want to be a one-week team, I guess they, they've got a great squad for it. If they want to compete for Grand Tour wins in the future, going down the road, go with Egan Bernal and sign more riders like that. Because what they have here is not working. And I think, you know, just my reading from the outside is they're letting internal politics kind of warp selection to the point that it's ridiculous. Like the fact that, I mean, their Giro team was was far stronger than this Tour team. Um, like the fact that Rowan Dennis couldn't make the cut is crazy, or Adam Yates or Egan Bernal. Like those are the strongest riders, not not this team they sent to the tour. So I'll be sending out a detailed breakdown of where the race was won and lost in the newsletter coming out uh, maybe early tomorrow morning at this point. But just to to kind of sum it up here, it's super interesting where um, you take out so Jonas Vindegaard. I didn't know a ton about him. Um, if we go back to the tour of the Basque Country, he had a great ride. I actually thought that race could have given a template to a team like Ineos who wanted to um, really disrupt Tadej Pogacar because that's exactly what Jumbo Visma did at that race. They isolated him from his teammates pretty far from the finish on a descent. He can't do it on a climb. Like, let me spoil it for you. You're not dropping him on a climb. Stop it. You know, pressure him on descents and on flats. That's where you can catch him out. That's what happened. That's where he lost time at the 2020 tour, and that's how Yumbo um, kind of put him put him in the put him in the vice a little bit at Tour of the Basque Country. So Vindegaard has a great ride there. Comes into this, um, I didn't really see this coming. You know, he he's like a big, like the blog boys of cycling love this guy. I didn't totally see it, but I see it now. Like wow, he is he's an incredible. The thing about him, he's an incredible time trialist and incredible climber. I mean, uh. He loses a total of two seconds to Tadej Pogacar in the time trials, if you combine both time trials, which is really impressive. Really impressive, considering Pogacar's around as one of the best time trials in the world, also one of the best climbers in the world. So you know, if we isolate the type of stages, Pogacar takes two seconds on Vindegaard in the time trials, two seconds in uphill finishes, which Pogacar is very good at. High mountain stages, we'll skip that for now. Um, hilly stages, no change at all. As I, as I said before, probably a bit of a possibly a bit of a missed opportunity there. Flat stages, 55 seconds to Bogachar because of Vindegaard getting caught up in that crash with Roglic on stage three. Time bonuses, 24 seconds to Bogachar. That's key. It doesn't seem like it at this tour because he won by five minutes and 20 seconds, but 
Um, he did take three minutes, 57 seconds on high mountain stages. Three minutes and 25 of those seconds were from stage eight when he got a five second time bonus at the top of Le Grand Bonard. And then three, finished three minutes and 20 seconds in front of the GC group. Um, that's a little bit, to me, that's a little bit exaggerated just because of how tough that first week was and how bad the weather was and how well Pogacar performs in the bad weather compared to his rivals. Like, obviously, those are legitimate seconds. Like, he took them. But it's not like we made it up. You have to ride in bad weather. I just don't think in the future that's replicable. Um, Pogacar should not be going into Grand Tours thinking, you know, I'm going to take four minutes in the mountains so I can, I can mess around. Um, I think that was a little bit of a fluke. I'm not taking any way. Like, Tadej Pogacar's win here was incredible. Um, goes without saying, just not super interesting to talk about. Tadej Pogacar is going to win the next 10 Tour de France's because he's so much better than everyone. I'm looking for potential weak points here. So I don't want anyone to think I'm just like needlessly criticizing Pogacar. Um, if, if we just change that, if we alter that high mountain, those high mountain games, if we just take out stage eight, just assume it's a nice day. They all finish on the same time. It's not a summit finish. Then things to get a little bit tighter and a little bit more interesting. And let's assume they finish stage three together. So you take out the time, you take out the 325 loss on stage eight, take out the 55 seconds on stage three. Let's just round that up to a minute. So that's four and a half minutes. Let's just say the gap is now one minute. Let's, we've given back Pagach or Vindegaard four minutes and 20 seconds. Then these time bonuses start to get a lot more important. If it's a one-minute gap in Paris, that 24 seconds Pogacar took, I guess if we're taking out stage eight, it'd be 19 seconds. Those 19 seconds are really important. And I think that, you know, this, if, I, if I'm taking anything away from this tour, it's that that's kind of Pogacar's secret weapon. Um, he's not as good at taking time bonuses as Roglic. Roglic is so explosive for a GC rider. But Roglic isn't going to be around forever. You know, he's 31 now. He'll be 32 next year. He'll have a few good years left in him. But if we're just thinking about the future, and you have to presume Pogacar, I guess he gets better from here. That's kind of crazy to think about. It doesn't always work that way. We'll talk about that in a second, too. Um, but that, I, I would point to that and say that is what Vindegaard's up against in the next few years. Figuring out, you know, he can, he can climb with Pogacar. He proved that in, in the Pyrenees. Pogacar was putting out serious power on those climbs, and Vindegaard could stay with him. Um, I think he's, he's, just as, he's just as physically talented in, in those long climbs, but he just got caught out with, he, he, if you remember, he had bad, bad crash, some bad crashes in that first week. So I think, you know, just looking forward, let, let's take out that stage eight, and we, you know, we kind of possibly have a really interesting rivalry heading forward. Um, the Carapaz comparisons are a little less compelling because he loses essentially three minutes to Pogacar in both time trials. If you add them together, loses essentially four minutes in the mountains and 28 seconds in time bonuses. Take, it takes 26 seconds on that flat stage. The problem with Carapaz, I think he's going to have going forward is he's a wily racer. He can take time you know, on stages like stage three, but he thrives when he, with the spotlights off. When he's riding as the leader for a team like Ineos, that's not what Richard Carapaz is good at. He's good at being like the second or third card. If you remember that Giro that he won, no one was paying attention to him. He could kind of ride away and get gaps before the final climb or just ride away on a final climb when Roglic and Nibali were looking at each other. Uh, that's, that's not going to happen probably ever again. So he's not a great like watts per kilo um, Tour de France type rider. Um, I think his success, his career success will be in the Vuelta and Giro. 
Um, obviously good enough to finish on the podium of the tour though. So that's, that's nothing to scoff at, but as far as looking forward and breaking down, like where this race was really won, it, it, it was one on, I mean, I've, let's say stage five and stage eight with a little cherry on top for stage nine. I mean, that, that, that was probably, um, possibly even more demoralizing for the rest that stage, uh, that summit finishing teen teen where Pogacar just sat in and then Carapaz tried to attack him and he just smoked everyone and put 30, like an easy 32 seconds into them going into the finish. But if you remember, that was a cold mountain stage. If you remember 2020 and 2021 have not been at the normal time slots. Um, it was way late in 2020 because of COVID early this year because of the Olympics. You know, when it gets back to its normal time slot in 2021, you know, there's just, it doesn't seem like a lot, but a week is a lot in the mountains, at least for, yeah, like alpine weather patterns. So he might not get as many cold, rainy days in the future. He certainly can't count on them. Um, there's a lot of tours where there's just not many cold days. There might be some like chilly days, but just not cold, rainy days because it is the middle of the summer. Pogacar won this, handily wins this race, really won it in those two alpine stages. A little bit disappointing to me. We only get two stages in the Alps. I'm not quite sure what that was about as far as the route design. I guess they wanted the Vontu stage. When you go to Vontu, you got to go to Provence. There's no mountains in Provence except for Vontu. So you're kind of stranded there. We did get a couple days in the Pyrenees and maybe this is the writer's fault. I mean, I guess stage 16 could have been interesting, stage 15 as well. Um, but those were just pushes on the GC. People were just waiting for 17 and 18, the, the tough summit finishes. And those were, those were great stages. I mean, at least on paper, it's always nice when you have the GC riders contesting the summit finish. So they were a success in that way, but the GC was just so far out of reach by then. And, you know, the riders are, are a little, I guess we're more level. I'm not quite sure why. I mean, it's possible that the, the fitness between Carapaz, Vindegard, Pogacar are not that big in general. Um, Carapaz just can't time trial with them. And we just had such a wacky and hard first week, especially with the weather, that we got these huge gaps that kind of, I wouldn't say ruined, but certainly muted the rest of the GC battle for the rest of the race. Um, another interesting thing to, to talk about is Vindegaard took 12 seconds on Pogacar in week three. Um, obviously, you can't point to that and say, look, he's the better rider. He's going to win next year. Because what did Pogacar care? He had a five and a half minute lead. Is it is it is interesting because that is with Pogacar going all out up until that final time trial. You know he was trying to drop those guys in the in the Pyrenees. So um, great! I, I cannot emphasize how great this is for Jonas Vingegaard. Super impressive. Um, I, w- I would say these these tours are a little bit different maybe than early Armstrong and Froome tours where there does look to be. I don't want to disparage anyone, but. The, the level of competition during those Froome and Armstrong years were not super high. The riders Froome was beating were not, in my opinion, were not world-class GC riders. Um, but I, I, we're not, that's not the case now. Uh, we still haven't seen Egan Bernal, Egan Bernal, Egan Bernal, healthy at his best racing against Tadej Pogacar. Maybe we will someday if, 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 if Ineos will select him for a race, a big race that matters. And Wout Van Aert, I mean, the sky's the limit for that guy. Like, who knows what could happen if he doesn't, you know, if he wants to train to be a GC rider, which he might not. Um, that could be kind of suboptimal. He's not going to be as explosive and exciting and just have, he's going to have less fun being a GC rider. So maybe he doesn't want to do that. Um, also, who in their right mind would want to be a GC rider right now, anyway, with Tadej Pogacar? 
But he, you know, I, th- I think in my bones, I think that he could have, if he came into this without that appendix surgery, he, he would have been a contender for that overall. Um, and Jonas Vindegaard, we haven't seen, we haven't seen the, the last of him. You know, he's a legitimate star on the rise, at least in the GC, in my opinion. Um, you could have said the same thing about Jai Henley and Teo Gigginhart last year after the Giro, but the tour is, diff- the tour is bigger than the Giro. Um, getting second at the tour is a big deal. Um, not many people fluke into that. So, so remember to sign up for Beyond the Peloton, the Beyond the Peloton newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com to read my detailed breakdown on where this tour was won, where the time was won and lost. And thanks for listening. And we, I will be back next week because we have the Olympics coming up this weekend. Everyone had to fly to Tokyo yesterday, last night and today, which is insane. So I'll be back talking about those Olympic road races and see if Wout Van Aert can double up with a win there after his great Twitter friends. <laughs>